0: Get your library card now at tdmlibrary.thediversitymovement.com.
1: You can't stop me. Nothing's going to
2: stand in my way. Nothing, nothing. I'm going to fly higher. You're listening to the High Octane Leadership Podcast with Donald Thompson. The world is shifting around you none of us were trained for this changing environment you need high octane leadership in an empathetic world before your business is swallowed alive this podcast focuses on actionable hands-on tools you can use to become a high octane leader today and grow strong leaders throughout your organization to survive tomorrow join me along with global c-suite leaders rising stars ambitious entrepreneurs and other leaders from across industries as we dissect, interrogate, and redefine high-octane leadership in an empathetic world. This podcast is your home for uncovering the tools, lessons, and strategies you need to push your leadership to the next level. Today, I'm excited to introduce you to the seven core competencies that are essential for developing culturally competent leaders at scale. These competencies are part of what make up TDM LeaderView, leadership development that builds winning organizations. In today's increasingly diverse and interconnected world, it's more crucial than ever for leaders to possess the skills and the knowledge to effectively navigate and lead in a culturally inclusive workplace. Culturally competent leaders are equipped with the understanding, empathy, and adaptability to foster an environment where everyone feels valued, respected, and empowered to contribute their unique perspectives. I'm delighted to have Bob Batchelor, Director of PR and Publications at the Diversity Movement, join us today to delve into these competencies and how LeaderView empowers individuals and organizations to achieve cultural competency at scale.
1: Okay, so let's dig into, well, before we even begin with the competencies, let's just talk in general terms, why why TDM LeaderView? What's the impetus behind creating a leadership assessment tool?
2: So one, Bob, thanks for the question, and I'm looking forward to just hanging out and uh, having a little bourbon and, and, and talking leadership uh, a little bit with you. Um, one of the things that you don't wanna do as an entrepreneur is put something out in the market that doesn't have a clear level of differentiation or uniqueness, right? More of the same. And so when we thought about leadership development and integrating diversity, equity, inclusion into the leadership development kind of paradigm, We did our research of what was in the market because we were more than happy to leverage other tools for what our goals were to help our clients in different things. And what we found was a couple of missing ingredients. Um, When you look at 360-degree feedback or disk surveys or Myers-Briggs, and these are all wonderful tools, what you see is that they're naturally geared towards the success, growth, and education of the individual. That's number one. And then number two, they didn't naturally link cultural competency into the leadership development paradigm. So those are the two things we felt like we're missing. And so when we developed leader view, we said, wait a minute, <clears throat> there is a new era of leadership that people and talent expect their leaders to be empathetic, expect their leaders to give and receive feedback with an empathetic tone, expect their leaders to care about them, not just as a production cog, but as people with personalities and families and different things. But there's no training mechanisms to identify where leaders are and then how do they get to that new Uh, that new new normal, that new standard of excellence. And so when we created LeaderView, our cultural competency assessment tool for leadership teams, we wanted to focus on the skill sets and the matches, just talking before we we started the taping about sports teams. And when you think about great teams, uh, sportscasters will always talk about team chemistry, how that team works together, how they can finish one another's sentences, how they spend time on and off the court. Leadership teams are no different in that the best high-performing teams have complementary skill sets that the leader integrates to that one team concept that they can build and really change the world in their particular industry. So we created LeaderView to really develop a tool that could quickly and, and accurately develop cultural competency assessment tool for leadership teams, but at a price point. That wasn't a 100,000, 200,000 Accenture Deloitte type assessment that you had to have a huge budget in order to take advantage of. So, while very large multinational companies use our tool, we also have use cases of folks with 300 people in their company, right? 10 people on their leadership team. All right. We wanted the mid market to be able to benefit from this education and knowledge as much as a major enterprise organization.
1: One of the interesting things about LeaderView is the focus clearly on cultural competency. Do you see as a leader that this is a piece that's been missing from traditional executive education or is it, we're in this kind of era of culture, but I can imagine that there's a whole universe of leaders who are like, well, I have no idea where to turn.
2: I think that anytime culture changes, whether it is the advent of rap music, right, which was not a thing 50 years ago, 40 years ago, at least not as commercially viable as is, is now. People thought it was a fad. Well, think about people in leadership now thinking that command and control was the way they were raised, and now they have this to have this personalized leadership perspective for each of their employees. Is that a fad? Likely not. That means leadership teams have to retool, re-educate, And there was no way for them to do that structurally. And so that means that you had to have a very dynamic CEO or COO that already understood how to link, right? The empathetic tone with the economic. And that's not something that was taught in Harvard Business School. That's not something that's taught in the C-suite. It's really, how do you create these numbers? How do you give the financial payback and integrating the people side into the financial is, is a new standard. And so we felt like LeaderView was a way to comprise that knowledge, education, information in a very powerful information exchange that executives and people leaders all throughout the organization could quickly take advantage of and learn things that could change their leadership paradigm the next day. That the tools, the temperament, the training was not so complex, right, that it was going to take them six months to a year, that they could start making changes in a positive way quickly after the training started.
1: I think that's interesting, and
2: you know we don't like to overuse sports analogies, but a lot of
1: people understand them, even in today's culture-forward environment. Is there still room for a hard-charging CEO? Is there still <laughs> a place for you know the, we we um, we had like Jack Welch as a model when you and I were yep. coming up
2: through the through the game?
1: Is there still a place for that or? Is it
2: totally different? That's a great question. There's a place for it, provided that that leader has very strong self-awareness, which is one of the competencies that we'll talk about, such that they can make sure they build a team around them that balances the things that they are not. So it's not so much a function that I, as a leader, have to change completely, It means that my delivery of information, of leadership, of vision for the organization has to be pushed through the other 10 to 12 uh, folks on my leadership team. And if I've chosen all folks that are similar to me, then it won't work. If I have enough self-awareness that I have folks that I respect on the team that are talented, that produce results, but deliver those results in a different style than me, then that blend can still be very powerful. Right, That's, that's a good question.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting to think how much leadership styles have changed and how a tool like this can then be implemented. So it's, it's, a, it's a worthwhile endeavor to, to think through that question. I'd like to turn to the, the first competency, which is communication. It seems on one level that communication would be the easiest thing. But it's it's first for a reason. It's incredibly difficult. Yeah. And incredibly difficult. Under any circumstance, the 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 communicators who run the largest marketing companies in the world have a hard time communicating with their staff and their their employees, the same as a mom and pop shop mm-hmm. that's been a family business for 50 years and has had turnover and and people don't know how to talk, maybe even when one division's run by a cousin and the other you know oh, his, sure. is run by uh, you know the, the grandson of the founder or something. So why is communication so difficult?
2: Yeah, one, th- thanks for the question. Think about the difference in communication expectations over the last 10, 15 years of leadership. Historically, leadership communication was a one-way dialogue. The boss, the leadership, the executive, the board told the rank and file what they wanted. And then the job of the rank and file, we both spent a lot of time in from Pittsburgh, right? Think about steel mill. You think about the thousands of people to steel mill. Well, there was only a handful, a very small percentage of folks that were in management or leaders with the steel mill, right? And they set the time at work. They set the policies. They set the procedures. And everyone else's job was to follow, The goal, the expectation, the way you were awarded was not through innovating, was not through sharing new ideas. Do what you're told from this time to this time. Take your break. Do what you're told from this time to this time. Go home. See you tomorrow. And that was a mindset, right, of businesses throughout industries. Today, communication, because employees have the ability to move jobs and roles so much easier, You have to create an environment where people want to come to work, want to stay, and want to stay engaged. So that means communication and dialogue is the CEO to the board, to the shareholders, to their executive team, to their mid-level managers, to their frontline employees, to their clients, to their investors. There's so many more communication channels. than you look at There used to be a time where you would send memos throughout your organization if you were a corporation (laughs) at that time. But now you have email. Now you have portals for your employees, right? Now you have media teams. So there's so many social media and the like. There's so many different distribution channels that just simply because of the number of channels of distribution of content, communication has to be even more precise. And then because so many more people's inputs are valued, you have to make sure you're sharing that communication in a way that a more diverse audience can hear you and understand you and feel like you're communicating. And then the other thing that's radically different is the type of feedback that leaders get from their teams. Gen Z communicates to their managers in ways that those of us that are Gen X would never say out loud <laughs> in, a, in a work situation, right?
1: That's for sure. And,
2: and so the communication... Um, really creates an environment that it's a little bit harder to build trust, but you have to be intentional about it. And you have to make sure that the words you use, the tone that you use, and the vehicle that you use for communication meet the needs of that particular um, opportunity or, or content piece you're trying to communicate.
1: Yeah, I think the, the interesting point that you raised there is communication has evolved so rapidly, but there also has to be a bit of candor or quite a bit of candor that comes along with that, that would then lead to authenticity. So there's more communication. If we can then build up the level of candor, then we will have authentic communication. And I think that maybe is that where you're seeing some stumbling in among leadership teams.
2: I think about communication, and I'll use four elements, right? Because you use the word authenticity. And then what does authenticity mean? Well, it's hard to be authentic if you're not transparent. It's hard to be authentic if your communication is not timely, right? Do you give people the time and space to communicate the things they need to know in a timely enough manner that they can make a good decision with that knowledge, that information? When you are a good communicator, you also have to be an active listener so that you can gain understanding from other folks' point of view. And then you have to be accountable to the words you use and the commitments you make. To so accountable to the words you use, how you speak, but also to the commitments that you make. Right. Does your word continually mean something? And that's really important to develop the foundation of authenticity. And so because the stakes have risen in terms of my accountability as a leader right now, all of a sudden it does get more complicated because I can't just be off the cuff. I can't just say something and change my mind, you know, three, four, five days later, because everything's digital. People remember everything's recorded. I got the best communication advice from an employment lawyer, actually. And we're talking about risk. And he said, Don, you need to speak in a corporate setting as if everything you say is recorded. And that creates a level of authenticity. So you have to be the same behind closed doors, behind the cameras as you are in front of them such that now you're not trying to remember the lie you told or remember the way you spun something, remember the way you try to manipulate. Your truth has to be just as true when the microphone is on as it is off, because that over time is going to be and illustrate whether or not people are going to trust you enough to put their careers in your hands. And that's really what people are doing when they choose to work for you, whether it's a small organization, large organization, et cetera. And the other thing on communication is, and I mentioned this, but it's super important and something I had to learn over the years, is that listening component. Those of us that are high-octane leaders, those of us that have uh, been successful, been leaders for a number of years, we can often hear a phrase, we can often hear parts of an information or story and know the answer or the outcome. And I've had to resist giving that answer and hear the full view, point of view Full feedback from team members. I had to learn that even if I understood a little bit of where they were going and I had an answer that made sense, maybe part of the communication is they wanted to be heard. They wanted to feel valued. And me cutting their statement off, me not giving them space to finish their full thought was taken as disrespectful. I was trying to accelerate, right, the solving of a problem. But in doing that, I created another one. And so the nuance around the communication rules as a leader have changed dramatically and something I've had to learn a lot about. I think one of the things that people
1: criticize younger professionals for is that you can't be critical with them. But then what we're seeing, though, is there there has to be maybe a constructive criticism, at least amongst leadership teams, to build up collaboration that allows you to then unlock that box of innovation, creativity, uh, diversity, diversity of thought.
2: I've had similar biasy in terms of not wanting to give complete candor to individuals that I've worked with and for because of how they might take it or their feelings or different things. And and a lot of that, quite frankly, is true. Some people might get mad about it, but people in the workplace today, man, they, they want compliments <laughs> And compliments. (laughs) And if you got, you know, to make critiques, I want you to keep that yourself, right? Don't you understand my value, my brilliance, X, Y, Z? Here's what I've learned about communication. I still communicate the standard that I need people to hit. I still communicate if there are things that I like or don't like. I try to explain the thought process behind that more than I used to. It doesn't change the healthy tension in the conversation, but it does create the perspective. Second thing it does is it reinforces that I believe that they can do more. So it's actually a compliment. And I share that. Mm -hmm. You presented me something. Let's say the person's name is John and John, this is pretty good, but I bet if you spend another hour looking at this social media copy, this campaign, if you spent, um, an hour looking at this new product development rollout, I bet we could come out with a few more things that are more compelling. Here's a couple of examples of what I mean. And so I've had to, in order to maintain that high octane leader that I am and be authentic in my communication, I'm not holding it in, but I am trying to be more thoughtful in explaining the full point of view of why I don't think something met the mark so that it doesn't feel just as a negative conversation only. People are still gonna take feedback that we call constructive, that we call whatever. If they don't hit the mark, they're gonna feel some kind of way about it, right? I can't fix that. But what I can do as a leader is make sure that I explain to people why and how I'm willing to help them get to the standard that we both expect. That I think if we're in it together, we can work together to get this piece of work that you provided and take it to the next level.
1: That's great. Um communication leads to our next competency and goes so much hand in hand with collaboration. How are you seeing collaboration? Because again, somebody from the outside might say, well, communications. We all communicate every day. We write, we talk, we read, etc. We we get by through the day. It might seem the most natural thing in the world to think that teams of people collaborate. But then once you actually get inside an entity, inside a, a meeting room, you see that people don't co- collaborate at all. So what are you seeing right now? Is, is this you know, a major challenge? Is it something that you're seeing frequently amongst leadership teams and, and executives you coach?
2: Yeah, I, I think that collaboration is a major element towards creating a sustainable organization, right? If you want to win for a short period of time, then gain the information insight you need from a few people that are superstars. It's fine. You can win for a short period of time. If you want to win over a sustained period, then as a leader, you have to create an environment where the best idea wins, whether it comes from an intern, whether it comes from somebody in operations, whether it comes from a sales professional, whether it comes from the C-suite that the organization is seeking excellence in innovation, and that means we have to tap for collaboration people we may not normally connect with because they may have an expertise that we, we need. So I'll give an example. right? When you are um, looking at going into a new market, right? You're, you're building a product or service, but it's going into a new market. And you don't have anybody on your leadership team that represents that new market. Well, how silly is it if you continue without trying to widen the tent of people in the discussion To find people that have much more closer affinity to the market you're trying to go after. It just makes good business sense to create an environment where people feel comfortable speaking up, speaking their truth, disagreeing in a professional way, but yes, understanding that healthy tension exists, and that you as a leader, we as leaders, have to foster that environment. Another thing in terms of collaboration that I think is super important is I don't think when you're leading or facilitating a meeting. You shouldn't speak your ideas first. We're still in an environment that is crippled by hierarchy. So as leaders, we have to set the environment where people can participate, knowing that if we lay down the gauntlet on something that we believe strongly, that a percentage of people in that room are going to turn into, they're just going to nod their head and yes, and the, the boss has now spoken or the VP has now spoken, versus that executive or that person running the meeting saying, We're here today to solve X, Y, Z problem. And I'm as interested in your ideas as I am in sharing my own. So I'm going to go last. And I want to make sure everybody has the opportunity to participate. And then you move forth and go forward with the collaboration. But the leader has to set the tone. And you have to be authentic, to use that phrase that you used before, in that people aren't going to give you their best ideas if they don't think they're going to be thoughtfully considered it doesn't mean you have to adopt them but people's ideas need to be thoughtfully considered for you to develop a collaborative framework within your organization
1: i think it's what what's interesting there is that you actually role modeled the behavior as you're answering the question which is is very interesting and i can tell you from my own experience with us working together yeah. i was first a somewhat consultant to you sure and that was a different relationship because at that time, that powers are always in and, and hierarchy, as you mentioned. Yeah. And when I first joined the team, you said to me, "Hey, I want you to I want you to disagree with me." And And I was like, "No way, this <laughs> guy's <is> crazy. <laughs> he doesn't actually mean it. But what I realized and, and through our discussions over time is that I was carrying baggage from being a PR and marketing executive. In which you're told during your whole career that you are a cost center. So it's like ultra servant mentality that you develop over time. And you never, I don't know many marketing executives. It takes a long time to develop the trust. And that's part of collaboration. The leaders I had early in my career weren't interested in creating true collaboration because I couldn't dissent. And that's one thing that I know that is such an important part of TDM leader view is the understanding that dissent builds towards something better if it's done with respect and
2: and with with clarity. I love it. The thing I would add to that, because I I agree with everything that you've described, early in my career, I was working for uh, my mentor, my good friend, uh, Grant Willard. And we were a small software company. At the time, maybe we had 12 people. But our clients were some of the largest companies in the world. Boeing, Raytheon, John Deere, like some of the largest manufacturing companies on the planet. And remember Grant talking about the best idea wins because our software was being used and affects the lives of others. And so if we got it wrong, then the missiles that Raytheon supplied for our government meant our government couldn't protect us as well. We sold uh, technology to a company called Jetway, and they built the, the bridges between the um, airline ticket counters and the actual airplane. One of our clients was Canadian Pacific Rail that built the railway system throughout the entire country of Canada. So we couldn't afford the niceties of where the idea came from to solve problems because we had to have the best possible product so that the people that were using our software to build technology that affected people's lives had the best opportunity possible because we did our jobs. And so one of the things that's super important is to teach your team the importance of their participation. And that's one of the things that Grant did really, really well. And it helped not only cement the trust that he wanted good ideas and strong ideas, it made it our responsibility, which was even the next level of leadership, is how to inspire people to be responsible that they can't leave the room without sharing their idea. The other thing that I would say on collaboration is you also have to give people different forums to collaborate. Some people, no matter how you try, no matter how you set the stage, face-to-face in a group of 15, 20 people, they're just not going to speak up. But if you pull them aside and you say, listen, you were a little bit quiet today in the meeting. Is there anything you'd like to share with me that you didn't feel comfortable or you just didn't have the space? As a leader, you have to be intentional about getting the best from your team members and realize that everyone collaborates different depending on the timing, the environment, and and kind of what's going on in their life. But super important.
1: In that team setting and as you're trying to create a collaborative team, I think the CEO still is looked to to create the unity to to, to uphold the core values so as somebody who talks to a lot of ceos and is also a ceo how do you see your role as a leader in terms of of building collaboration through the, the company or organization's core value system i
2: i think um it has a lot to do with the self-image of the ceo Not the talent, skill, talk about those things later, but the self-image. The stronger my self-image as a leader, the stronger my self-esteem was, the more open I was to information, ideas from anywhere. The more that I was struggling with who I was, the more closed minded I was. And so when I think about collaboration and then coaching CEOs and coaching business leaders and different things, We talk a lot about technical skill and about the way they think about strategy and different things. But a lot of times the real root of it, it is what is that emotional intelligence? What is that self-esteem level? And how do we continue to rise that so that there's a true understanding as a leader that your goal is to empower other people to be great? And, and, you know, I'm the son of a football coach. I understood that from a sports standpoint. It took me a little while longer to understand that from a business standpoint, but the fundamentals are the same in that amazing people will come on your team and stay on your team to the degree that you share the accolades, the credit, the environment with them, right? And one of the things that I talk about at the diversity movement, uh, as we were hiring and recruiting a world-class team that I'm so proud of, is we talk about being the DEI Avengers. And if you think about being an Avenger, Right. It means you're strong enough in your talent, your skill, your superpower to have your own movie. But we come together to change the world. And that metaphor is really, really important because I want the leaders on our team to feel empowered and to know that I understand their spirits of excellence. And I want to see it. Right. In fact, I expect it, that that's what we agreed upon, is that you came here to do great work so that when we see that the work's not great, then let's work together to make it that way. And so it's about that standard, that responsibility around collaboration. And then the leader's responsibility is to make sure that the, the oil or the communication, so to speak, to use a machinery metaphor, uh, is always well oiled, right? So that people always feel comfortable. You'll have you know, ebbs and flows based on life, team, things that are going on, but it is the leader's responsibility to make sure that collaboration, the best idea wins, and that people feel included. That goes back to right DEI inclusion, right? Well, from a leader standpoint, when we talk about collaboration, you think about inclusion. How can you have the best idea if only three people participate? And so when I talk to executives about diversity, equity, inclusion, those are examples that I use. And most business leaders want to win. So I talk about modeling your leadership team, your style, your criteria, to give you and your team the best chance to win dominate and sustain that winning culture. I
1: think what we're talking about here in different language is Mm self-awareness, which is one of the leadership uh, competencies in TDM leader view. And when you really start digging into self-awareness, it's a fascinating topic. And so I was digging around for what percentage of business leaders are actually considered self-aware The number might shock you. 10 to 15% is the estimate of leaders who would be considered self-aware. So, it's something you would cons- you would think maybe from the outside. Oh, that's an easy one. Let's check that box. I, I'm certainly self-aware, but when you just scratch the surface,
2: uh-huh.
1: 1 in 10, 2 in 10,
2: there's levels to this thing. Yeah. And, you know, self-awareness is something that allows you to look at your strengths but also look at your weaknesses without blaming others, right? A lot of times as leaders, we've gotten good at camouflaging our weaknesses by putting the responsibility for those weaknesses on someone else, the environment, the industry, the blah, 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 right? Versus really owning who you are and where you want to be. And for me, the, the way that I thought about self-awareness and staying self-aware is if I made my challenges – someone else's responsibility, then I have to wait for them to fix them. If I own responsibility for who I am, what I'm becoming, and where I want to go, then I have the capacity and the power to make the changes I need to make. And so I used my ego to be more self-reflective, if mm-hmm. that made sense, yep. right, um, and and go. But I, I think that... Um, We can all improve in that area. One thing I did that helped me early in my career with just being self-aware is I had a small little mirror that I had in my office. So before I would walk outside to talk to any other team members, um, I would look in the mirror. If there was something going on that I didn't like that needed corrected, I looked in the mirror first. And it always made me a little bit more thoughtful in what I was communicating with others. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's something that I had to to start. And the other thing that I've done over the years, not all the time, but from time to time, I will uh, work with an executive coach. Um, just because you coach others or different things like I do doesn't mean that you can see your blind spots. Right. And so those two things, right, looking in the mirror, but also getting somebody to do that with me from time to time are two things that have helped me develop that self-awareness muscle. And I do think it can be developed if you have the commitment and the desire to do it.
1: And I think the interesting, and I'd dig in on this a little more because it's just so fascinating. When you think about self-awareness, you can't think about self-awareness without thinking about the larger world of diversity, equity, and inclusion, because as a leader and as a leadership team, doesn't matter if you're at a Fortune 10 company or you're at a a small organization, the variables for you as a leader... Mm -hmm are the same things your teams dealing with. That's right. Your upbringing, your personal development, the feedback loops that you have in your life, your life experiences. We were talking before we sp- we began recording about our life experiences mm-hmm. and how they still shape most Absolutely. people what they never stop shaping most people. And so, but that plays a factor in self-awareness and how you adapt Certainly when it's not like somebody comes and put the crown on your head or tiara and says, you're CEO now.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And there's no readiness for that level of accountability. I mean, and it's a lonely space because there's very few people, you know, there's some organizations that have co-CEOs, XYZ, but not typically, right? Typically there's a, there's a single individual that has the top spot in a corporation independent of size and it's a lonely place because there's very few people that can relate to the things that you're going through at that moment in time. And most leaders have not gotten into very good habits about being very transparent with their board, their leadership team, et cetera. So when you're constantly kind of covering to put put the best face on everything, you can kind of lose your true north of truth. And so it's a very serious fight for CEOs. To maintain that balance, to where self uh, awareness can thrive.
1: Yeah, the show Succession, which I know you watched, uh, so many people watched. That was like the cartoon version of real problems. Mm-hmm. And if you look at that show from a well-being perspective, it's just off the charts. But I know people that aren't far from that. Yes, and and self awareness seems to be a major piece of that. I mean they all lacked self-awareness in some very serious senses. But I read another thing that might, given that only 10 to 15% are considered self-aware, it said that of all the leadership competencies, and I'm not necessarily sure I agree with this, but this is just one writer's estimate, that self-awareness was the, quote, strongest predictor of overall success of all leadership competencies.
2: Mm. I think that... I agree with it mostly. So let me talk about the points I agree. I think self-awareness is a trigger for you to be able to be effective at the other elements we're going to talk about. I think if you're self-aware, like I'll give an example in communication. For a long time, I only used sports analogies to communicate things. Well, that's from my perspective. Being self-aware, I had to say, wait a minute. I have folks on my team that didn't ever play sports. Maybe I should use examples of movies or the theater or politics or something else other than my lens, my point of view. Being self-aware is putting yourself in the shoes of someone that doesn't necessarily feel comfortable speaking up in a large group. It's a trigger. Being self-aware allows you to look at your capabilities and determine where your strengths, weaknesses, your opportunities and threats are and then act accordingly. So... I do think self-awareness is a um, point of leverage, right, for the other six competencies that, that we're, we're, we're talking about. In my own career,
1: and it, and it really was after mo- a lot of my early business career, I was teaching and uh, a colleague was a executive coach and we used to just chit-chat. His office was next to mine and he said to me one day, he's like, you know, you're you're really self-actuated. And I was like, I don't even know what that means. I go and look <laughs> it up, and it's you know basically very self-aware. And I said, well, if that's a trait that I need to develop, I'm going to just develop it. So I'm highly aware of what I'm not good at and what 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 I am good at. I don't know that it makes me any different, but I I took it as part of my own lifelong learning mm-hmm. to understand what people were talking about that, right. and then what the value might be. Yep. And this leads naturally into capability, which is another core competency that we talk about. It's a person's role and the tasks in the team and and how they execute their responsibilities. Yeah.
2: I think when you think about capability, it's this is a little bit more straightforward, right? It's hard to be a VP of sales or a chief sales officer if you can't close, <laughs> right? Like, if you like, like I mean, can't, you, you should. can't be the
1: chief comms officer if you don't know how to write.
2: Yeah, exactly, right? So capabilities, you know, one of the things that we wanted to do in these seven competencies is we also wanted to get real, right? Because we can talk about empathy, we can talk about self-actualization, and all of these things that will help us be a more empathetic leader. Well, it doesn't matter if you're empathetic if you get fired, because you don't mean the numbers. <laughs> You'll be a fired, empathetic leader, (laughs) right? And so capabilities really are around the skills required to meet the standards set out for your role, right? Like it's it's a CFO that doesn't understand numbers. Well, okay, that's not going to be helpful, right? And so whatever your job function is, there are certain hard skills. There are certain soft skills that are uniquely aligned with that role and function in the business. And it is important when you're talking about team integration to ensure that the leadership team doesn't have heavy title inflation. So, for example, people throw around the CMO title. You could have a CMO on the leadership team, but what if that CMO doesn't think strategically, but is a very good tactical marketing executor? Right? Well, the capabilities of a CMO is to basically understand not only the marketing and comms function the lead generation function, but how does the business make money across production, across sales, across legal, across finance, such that the marketing lens has the full cycle of the business built into it. That's the difference between a CMO and somebody that is a tactical marketer. Both are needed in the business. So when we look at capabilities as we look at these competencies, we wanna be very clear that there is a place for being able to do your job, do your job well, and meet clearly defined objectives. And the capabilities is super important because that's another area where you gain and keep respect of your teammates because you're good at what you do. I enjoy our talks. I enjoy being in business with you. I respect you as a world-class writer. That respect is based on the capabilities. I respect you as a human. We're in business, and we're in business to change lives, make money, and do these things. In order to do these things at a high level, you have to have around you people that are capable of doing what they committed to do, right, at a high level. And so the capability component, when we're looking at leader view, is about those things that align with the role. And we think a CFO needs to be able to close the books of an organization. A CFO needs to be able to deal with legal and compliance. A CMO needs to be able to think strategically about marketing. And we'll align those things. But it's very, very important that some of this is not on the softer side, but is on the hard side of business where results matter. There's consequences for not delivering results. And we expect people in roles within a leadership team are capable uh, in, in their domain, in their subject matter.
1: And then as you think about how then people integrate into a team and into a collaborative setting, capability becomes a bedrock for trust.
2: Correct. If you believe and have evidence that Sarah in marketing is excellent at her job and you work in sales. You can talk and collaborate with Sarah about what sales needs from marketing because you know that conversation can lead to the execution of a new and better strategy. And so it is very important that your team members across the leadership team respect one another for their competencies overall, but their capabilities specifically uh, to their, to their roles. It's very very important.
1: Yeah. I'll give you a quick example. Uh, Jamie Elsterout, our chief experience officer will slack me and say, Hey, Bob, can you, can you look at this message that I'm going to send out because she's responsible for internal communications. And no matter what I'm doing, I almost always drop whatever I'm doing and, and help her because over time we have built such a high level of trust because we understand that we can help one another because we're we're very capable in our roles. Mm-hmm. And I know if she asks me, and she's very sometimes apologetic because she's just a very sweet and kind person in addition to being a great leader, that she she is going to ask me because it's something that's going to move the business forward. The culture doesn't hinge on it, but it's important yes. to the overall culture. Yep. And so I think that's an example of you know, in our world where capability actually plays a number of interesting roles beyond just the fact that we, we, are, we have proven that we do our jobs well together.
2: The other the thing that is, extends on that is communication is a capability. Collaboration, which you described as a capability. So one of the things as a leader, and we feel very strongly about this from a leader view perspective, is that your capabilities are not just what you do singular. But how do you make other people better around you? And how do you add to the value of the entire leadership team? One of the leadership teams I was speaking with and one of their top performers uh, had the largest division, uh, bringing in the most money. And we had a great candid discussion after going through this process. And he said, point blank, I always thought about doing my job and reporting to our CEO the numbers I committed to. I didn't understand my responsibilities being a part of his team and supporting my teammates that were also his direct reports. And this is a multi-billion dollar brand that I'm talking about. And so I think that it's super important for us all to realize that being a leader in a high-performing leadership team means that part of your capability set should be communication, collaboration, self-awareness, and those things that we've talked about.
1: Let's turn to growth mindset. It's a fascinating competency. It's essential. It, it it helps. It's almost like the mortar that holds the brick wall of the team together. Mm-hmm. So I wonder from your experience, how does growth mindset help that team come together and and, and then propel forward?
2: So there is a a book called "Thinking." there is a book called Think and Grow Rich and it talks about a positive mental attitude and a lot of times people will equate that to you know everything's going to be okay and no matter what's going on everything's good and finding the silver lining and everything I like the phrase growth mindset a little bit better because you can grow through challenges you can learn through successes you can learn through failures it's the way that you perceive the challenges in front of you And I would have trouble, and this is my personal perspective, following a leader that did not have a growth mindset. Companies, organizations, countries, cities are going to have ebbs and flows of positive and negative that are going on. I want to follow leaders that say this is how we're going to get over this hill. Right. Times are tough. We had to do a small reduction in force. Here's how we're going to not have to do it again. Growth mindset doesn't mean you don't have to withstand, overcome and learn from challenges. What it does mean is that you look at the lens as a way to create a winning experience for your team through that tough time. That growth mindset is an appreciation for an opportunity to fix it. A growth mindset is customer calls you and they're disappointed in an aspect of of your delivery. And maybe that's not happened to anybody on the line that's listening here, but from time to time, uh, clients of mine have called and said, we didn't love something. Well, a growth mindset says, thank you for the opportunity to address this with you. Thank you for trusting me enough to share your feedback. And let me tell you what we're going to put in place so this doesn't happen again. That Those kinds of things represent a growth mindset versus blame game, versus not taking responsibility, versus something negative is going to stay that way by default. It doesn't mean that we don't have different views and responsibilities for things that go right and wrong in an organization. What it does mean is having a growth mindset means that your natural disposition as a leader is how do we climb, how do we grow, how do we win, how do we take that mountain, how do we overcome? And then you instill that sense of adventure, you instill that sense of work ethic, you instill that sense of problem solving and innovation into the team that you're trying to build That if we do this together, there's nothing we can't accomplish. And those are the kind of environments and leaders that I think people want to be around, that want to work with, that want to learn from. Because we all have things that hit us, hit our life, hit our businesses, hit anything that we're doing that, man, not a great day, right? That That we don't love. But how do you make that not so great day? Something that doesn't become a recurring bad week or a recurring bad month and then a recurring bad quarter? How do you take those learnings and push ahead? And so for me, in developing a growth mindset was really out of necessity, right? When you're on your own, you're trying to figure things out early in your career and you look around and there's no one to call. There's no one coming to save you. There's no one coming to bail you out. So that means you gotta figure it out. And a growth mindset has to do with, we're gonna figure it out. And if you have a growth mindset, And you've built in communication with your team and you've built in collaboration and you have highly capable people that you've selected, that you've rewarded, that you've worked with. You can have a growth mindset in good and bad times because the winners are gonna rise to the top anyway and love a challenge or a fight. I'm gonna give an example. I'll send out a shout out to Tony Pease and uh, Greg Boom. And we were working together at a company called iCubed, and we were a software development firm and I was a CEO. Both of them were were executives uh, on my leadership team, and just phenomenal. Tony ran sales. Greg ran our engineering. And I didn't. Back in those days, I didn't really take time off. Like I worked a lot, right? Because I wasn't good at my job yet, so I figured I'd outwork it, right? Like I, if I made it, you know, that was just my strategy, right? So anyway, I took a day off, and Tony calls me and says, "Hey, can we get lunch?" And I'm like, "Dude, like it's like the first thing." They hop up, it like in six months. You know this, right? He's like, "Yeah, no, I'm sorry, we got a little thing we got to talk about." It's like, "All right, cool." So we meet at um, this restaurant. It's uh, called McAllister's, Durham, North Carolina. Our largest client is threatening to break their contract with us because we provide services to one of their direct customers, and we were doing so well that the client wanted to work with us more than our big partner Mm. and our large partner. And if I said this name, this is a Fortune 100 company. This is one of the largest software companies in the world. And everyone hearing my voice would have their software on their computer. And they threatened us. They said, if you don't stop doing business with this customer, we are going to kick you out of our partnership program, no more access to our customers, and we're going to crush you. They, it, it wasn't, a, it, I don't even know if it was a threat. It was what they were going to do. Like we were being bullied. We were corporately being bullied. So Tony was like, I probably should talk to DT about this. <laughs> <laughs> so we meet at McAllister's, at, uh, at me, Greg, and, and Tony. Tony lays out what they said and says, so Don, what do you want to do? And we'll get our engineers ready for some beeps. And I was like, fuck them. They can cancel it all they want. But what we're not going to do is build a company where we're getting bullied and not proud of the great work that we're doing and and that we feel bad because we let a big company take us out of our game when we're doing well for our mutual client. So you call them and tell them we're not doing anything different and they can do what's best for their business and we'll do what's best for ours. So here's what happened. The mutual client called the software vendor and said, if you don't leave these little guys in Raleigh alone who are doing great work, we're going to pull all of our business from you because they're doing great work and we don't like bullies. (laughs) And so they left us alone. But the growth mindset, Tony had to give a call, communicate what went on. I had two, Tony and Greg, very talented. And we said, look, if we do this and they go through with this threat, It's going to cost us a lot of money. We're going to have to start over. Like, it's not going to be good. But we chose our growth mindset, our self-esteem over the dollars that day. And it was one of the defining moments of my career. It's one of the reasons I respect Tony and Greg beyond belief, because we both looked at each other and said, if this goes bad, we're not bailing on each other. We're going to rebuild. And having people uh, as part of my team that were capable like that and businesses I've led is one of the reasons I've been able to to succeed at any level is working with people that had that kind of backbone, that kind of fortitude, that kind of commitment, that kind of pride uh, in in what they were doing. But we had a growth mindset, but it was put to a test. (laughs) (laughs) And Greg and Tony, who are both, uh, Tony is the CEO of a company called Keramis, Raleigh, North Carolina. Greg is now CEO of an uh, AI company called Clear Intelligence, and both of them are killing it as leaders in their own right. And I was just fortunate that as kind of a stop on their career growth, uh, I was able to to rock with them and, and we worked together. But that that's a growth mindset story right there.
1: And I think, again, it leads us naturally into another of the competencies, which is cultural intelligence. And I think... What jumps right out at, at you when you think about cultural intelligence is it's a global world. It's it's never going to stop being a global world. You know, knock on wood. Yeah. The only thing that's going to stop it from being a global world is a very serious war, and that's going to throw everything off. So let's just put that aside. Yeah. <laughs> let's say that things stay relatively the same, yeah. <laughs> um, some degree of normality. And so how do we think about... Global issues and cultural intelligence as a glue for leadership teams.
2: So one of the things, and I love these questions and appreciate the opportunity to, to share and, and have this conversation, you know, one of the things you coached me on today, and as I was on a webinar with a global audience, and part of your feedback was to make sure that I kept that in mind with the examples and the analogies that I used to be a better communicator. And so cultural intelligence starts with the small things, right? So if you're talking to a global audience, you know, and, and I use a football analogy, what kind of football am I talking about? Most of the world, if I say football, it means soccer. If I say American football, it means the NFL. So cultural intelligence is really a more specific level of awareness, in that you have to look at the landscape of the people that you're working with, the people that you're selling to, the people that are stakeholders in your organization, and realize that we all come at problems with a different point of view. That's great for collaboration. But for communication, it forces us to be more thoughtful, right, of that global audience. And the other thing is to take a step back. And a lot of times, and I'll speak for myself, we have kind of a U.S.-led arrogance in that we think the way that the U.S. looks at the world is the way the world looks, right? And so I've had to learn through my career and working with people all over the globe to have a perspective that is different and unique and be open to listening to the ways that people in the world think about things differently than I do, right, based on the the environment that I was growing up in and that I live in. And so that's number one is that awareness. The second thing that I think is important around cultural intelligence is it's a tremendous learning opportunity. Right. And, you know, I'm on conference calls with folks globally all the time. And um, when I get an extra five minutes, 10 minutes for different things, I'll pull folks to the side virtually, uh, obviously. Uh, how are things going? Right. What is what's the outlook in London on some of the issues that you're hearing You know, about America? Right. You know, there's a war in the Ukraine and and, and Russian conflict. And I was talking with a business leader who had uh, a manufacturing facility in Russia. Right, and what are, you, what are you doing, doing business in Russia with what they did to Ukraine and how are you balancing that? I wasn't making a moral judgment. I was being inquisitive of how somebody that was running a global company was impacted by some of the things that are going on in the world, right? And so I think cultural intelligence is both that thoughtfulness that you have, the learning that we can do, but also, right, stay inquisitive as we're dealing with people all over the world with different views, different perspectives, That's one, I'm talking about geography. The other is, uh, you know, when we talk about diversity, equity, inclusion, and people that are different from us, one of the great friendships that I have is a friend of mine, John Samuel, who is blind. I never really thought about what his life was like until he and I became friends. But because I have a friend who lost his vision, I have a different level of empathy for low vision and blind professionals so, in my work in DEI, I talk about digital accessibility more than I would. Because my daughter is gay, I have more affinity to the LGBTQ community than I did 10 years ago. It wasn't because I was for or against someone, it was because that personalization created a, a deeper connection to people and things and environments that were different and made me more inquisitive, made me more thoughtful made me more humble, right? That I don't have all the answers. And so cultural intelligence to me is about seeking as much as it is as about knowing. And, and that's what I think is a leader that we need to think about and, and think through.
1: Yeah, I think cultural intelligence is interesting because it's another one of those competencies that then opens us up and, and allows us to look at context, allows us to use our critical thinking skills. In my own life, um, You know, when you and I were young, there was no such thing as neurodiversity. It it didn't exist. And we both have people in our inner circles, in our close inner circles who are neurodiverse, uh, family members, friends, Mm -hmm. colleagues. And when you start to think about the whole category of, there, there are people who have quote unquote invisible illnesses. Now, does cultural intelligence make me a smarter leader? I don't know, you could make that argument one way or the other, but it it certainly opened my eyes to different ways of thinking,
2: diversity of thought. certainly makes you a better leader, right? And what I mean by that is, if you have a website that is accessible and your conversion rate is better and you have more click-through and you sell more, it's better for your bottom line. When you have an environment where you make sure that in the meetings that you run, because of folks that may be neurodiverse, And you make sure that you send out agendas a couple of days before with pre-reads so that a broader group of people can develop value from the meeting. These are all actionable ways that we can take that cultural intelligence and apply that to our business and create better results. And so that's one of the things that got me excited about having this as a core competency because by my nature, I'm still super results-oriented. Even though I run a company that's talking about diversity, equity, inclusion, and quite frankly, that's why people, I think, like rocking with us. Is because we understand why DEI matters, but it matters also that we value link it right to the business drivers that that pay the bills, mm-hmm. and, and that connection is super important. But yeah, I'm a big fan of culture intelligence. I've got a lot to do, a lot of work to do, but it does uh, it is fun that that I'm further along than I was.
1: Yeah, I feel the same. I'll tell you a quick story. Yeah, I was teaching at a a major university. And we were recruiting all these Chinese graduate students. They'd already graduated for their four year degrees and they were killing it on their entrance exams, you know, the the SAT for, for grad school. They would come in though, they're Chinese citizens. They had it they had trouble speaking English, sometimes writing English, or one time one sometimes one would be strong, the other might be a little weaker. So the faculty all gets together and they're like, well, we we can't we can't pass these students because they can't write the same way our our graduates do. And we're sending them out in the world and that's going to look bad. So, so wait a second now. This is their second or third language. They if, if we tested them in Chinese, they would do just fine. They're probably better writers in their native language than you are in your native language. You want to hold them, you want to recruit them to this university and then just cast them aside? These are smart people. They're getting like near perfect scores on their entrance exams. They're studious. They'd read something two, three times to understand it. I'm like, this just isn't fair. So what my cultural intelligence lens did for me in that situation was just open eyes to what's fair. And so it just... It made me empathetic, even though sure. I didn't. Empathetic wasn't used then. It had not. Be, it had not come into. It wasn't the, a thing. No, wasn't <laughs> a thing in the business lexicon. But, but it had. It, it had meaning. I look at that now, and 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 I'm I'm actually proud of myself for for championing a voice for those students who they didn't have a voice for themselves. Okay. So. I'd really like to dig in a little bit on reliability, because I think it's also incredibly important. You might say it's kind of uh, uh, in kin with capability, reliability, but I think it's also another one of those competencies that's really important in not only bringing the team together, but helping it run better, helping drive organization, uh, innovation things along that line. No leader is perfect,
2: um, and I'm thankful for that right? Because <laughs> I bring my imperfections to the table every day. But we all can be reliable. We can all create consistency so people can understand how to work with us, how to relate to us, how to get their job done in, in, a, in a productive way through how we lead. And it is hard for teams large and small, right, to work with leaders that are not reliable, and think about it. One of the things I'm very proud of, I've been an entrepreneur, a CEO and entrepreneur companies for 20 years now and exited a handful of companies and, and and proud of those things. And, but I've never missed a payroll. And that's reliability. I remember, um, the getting the lease for the space that we're in right now. And, um, They were like, well, cool, we'll lease you the space. Uh, You know, we'd like you to do this little personal guarantee piece, but we'd love to have (laughs) right? And I was like, yeah, no, you need to look at our business and you need to look at the track record. And they're like, well, this is a new business. We'd love for you to personal guarantee. And I was like, well, I'm not going to do that. I'll go look at some other space. I have a pretty good brand around town and I've been in business for 20 years in this town. You can check with every landlord that I've ever rented from and I've never missed a payment on uh, a business lease that I've had. Um, where where we've located the business. That's reliability. And so they did those checks and different things, and then we got the space with no personal guarantee. And so people need to have things about you that they can set a clock to in terms of who you are, how you behave, the integrity that you do. I'll give another example of reliability. It's one thing to talk about empathy. It's one thing to talk about having a women-led businesses we had a very, I was prior to the diversity movement, I was CEO of a digital uh, marketing firm, Walk West. And Walk West now has an amazing new CEO. Uh, Abba Bowers is killing it, uh, doing better than I ever could. And so I'm, I'm really proud of Abba. When I was running the company, um, we had a pretty large pharmaceutical uh, client and one of the top five pharmaceutical companies in the world. Um, and one of their managers that was interfacing with us, was very aggressive and rude and belligerent with our team. And our team brought that to my attention. I gave them some ways to try to combat it and brought it up again, that it wasn't changing. Reliability means that when you tell your team you're going to protect them and look out for them, that you do so even at the risk that you might have a financial hiccup. And so that was an opportunity where I had to be reliable to those commitments that I made to our team about their work environment, what was expected. And no, the customer is not always right. It's just not true. And it ended up that we weren't the only ones that had some concern. This individual got moved out, and it didn't impact the business. But it could have, Mm -hmm. depending on who that person was, how they were wired, the different things of, of that nature. So to me, reliability is those things that people expect of you that you can do and be like clockwork, that your yes means yes, your no means no, that people can count on your commitments to be followed through, that if you say you're going to think through something, you're thoughtfully going to consider it. If you're not interested in something, you tell them that you're going to show up and put in a hard day's work the way that you ask them to do. And that you're going to be there to help them succeed, help them grow, help support them in their business. But that reliability is that consistency. And I think that in order to be a great communicator, a strong collaborator, to demonstrate your capabilities, to demonstrate that growth mindset, to continue to grow in cultural intelligence, to be self-aware, reliable is a component that is a through line through all the other competencies. Whereas self-awareness is the leverage for the competencies, I think reliability is the through line mm-hmm. through all of the competencies. And you know, when we think about the seven competencies and why we created LeaderView, um, this conversation illuminates that because we want to create that measurement to see how do we create high performing teams at scale at all levels in an organization. And you can't do that only looking at soft skills or only looking at capabilities. You have to integrate those cultural competencies across the board and then see really where you stand and then give your team the charge, right, to next level it and and be better. And I think that's what we're doing. Uh, it's one of the reasons I'm so proud of the, the product that our team created. And we looked at a bunch of other products. And I got to tell you, I like the Moxie of our team that said, we'll build one that we think is best of class mm-hmm. and and help a lot of people along the way.
1: Yeah, I think the, the through line of reliability is interesting because one of my favorite points from the competencies is reliability described as a quote, unwavering determination in the face of challenges. And when you look at each one of these competencies and the way that it it creates a stronger individual who is then better able to be a better teammate. And and that is really what we're all striving for. You know, we're not, if you're not born in a situation in which you don't have to work, what's the best work life you can have as to maximize yourself, to, to enjoy your work, to, to really try to go for, everything that you can and these competencies lay that out and and help you identify the places where you need some help where somebody else on the team can balance you yep but you can still make a contribution and and work toward that that continuous lifelong learning and self improvement i'm into it
2: bob i appreciate the time um i love when we just kick it have a little bourbon and just talk i think leadership is such a Complex topic, but I think these seven competencies simplified enough that we can all work on it And get better and I think that the way that we think about um, Building high-performing leadership teams with an empathetic lens to it. I think that's the next frontier and at the diversity movement We want to be on the cutting edge of the next frontier Uh, And and that is fun for us. That's fun for our team Uh, I know that uh, We've had a lot of great folks throughout the organization that have worked on this new product launch and uh, really, really proud of what, uh, what they've put together. And I'm happy to promote it, talk about it, use it um, myself and, uh, and learning from it.
1: Okay. Thanks, Don. Appreciate
2: and it. You're welcome. Cheers.
1: Yeah. Cheers.